AI is a new name for an old thing. It is, of course, the most overhyped term in the history of the world, as far as I can tell right now. In practice, as I've seen it applied in large businesses to improve performance, it is data plus math used to create statistical improvement in some repeated business decision process. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. A self-described physics and math nerd from MIT, Jim Manzi figured out early in his career that he loved the application of pragmatic, quantitative approaches to solve pesky real-world business problems, including today, challenges faced by life science and healthcare organizations. This is Tectonics. I'm Lisa Sunan. And I'm David Shaywitz. And today's show is sponsored by Manat Health a multidisciplinary professional services firm that integrates a full-service law firm and a broad-based strategic business and policy consulting practice to help its clients grow and prosper. Manat Health supports the full range of stakeholders in transforming America's healthcare system. All right, so David, what's going on? I hear you've been uh, reading some interesting books lately. Yeah, yeah. Well, we were thinking maybe you know holiday season coming up, people looking for book recommendations. So my, I, I have four. Okay, and, I have three. Uh, okay, all right. No, not being competitive. <laughs> um, so maybe yours are proportionally more important. So first <laughs> is uh, Tim Alberta's American Carnage about sort of the uh, the previous election with a lot of interesting read through. I think. Next is uh, the wonderful uh, New York Times uh, opinion writer, Barry Weiss, about how to fight anti-Semitism. Then David Epstein's uh, book, Range, which we've previously discussed. I won't re-re-rehash, but it's fantastic. And then Similar and Hansen have a book called Elephant in the Brain about the uh, role, essentially, of social signaling, uh, Mm -hmm. which is really, really interesting. Yeah. Um, So the ones I'm going to recommend relate to some of the shows we've done. So we did a show uh, last time, two weeks ago, with Jason Lembeck, and it made me think of Shannon Jacquard's book, Forgotten Survivors, A Sister's Journey Through Her Brother's Mental Illness, where she Mm. talks about sort of the siblings who are forgotten when a child commits suicide. Mm. Uh, Shami Feinglass, who we had a couple weeks before that, uh, reminded me of the book Season of the Witch by David Talbot, which talks about the dark history of San Francisco from the 1960s to 1980s, sort of the the um, fallout from the Summer of Love. And then uh, Jane Saracen Khan, who we had on the show some uh, probably last year, I think, wrote a book this year called Health Consuming about how consumers are reengaging in healthcare and how it's changing to serve them. Very, very. If we will include links to all of these, uh, so uh, you don't have to. Write them down really quickly as we talk. Absolutely. So I am beyond thrilled, beyond thrilled to welcome Jim Manzi to the program today. As I've admired his thinking for years, his book, Uncontrolled, is a must-read classic and discusses both the value of well-thought-out, randomized, controlled experiments in the real-world business setting, such as how to display food in a supermarket, for example, but also the danger of overgeneralizing in the policy setting on the basis of limited data. His rational view of topics from health policy to the environment are a welcome breath of fresh air, deeply rooted in science, yet appropriately cautious about extrapolating results beyond the limits of data, independent of what might be politically attractive or expedient. So, Jim, let's start off from the beginning. Your early life not only sounds like a Springsteen song... (laughs) You grew up on the Jersey Shore with five brothers and sisters. Your dad worked at a gas station. Your mom was a homemaker. But as I understand it, you grew up less than 10 minutes from E Street in Belmar, where Springsteen's band originally practiced and from which it took its name. 
as you've described it, things were pretty idyllic. Is that is that actually right? Uh, believe it or not, all that is correct. <laughs> I, uh, I grew up uh, yeah, in a very little town that was about uh, five miles from Asbury Park. Uh-huh. Um, although East Street, it is little known, is actually in Belmar, which is a town just south of uh, Asbury Park. Right. And even closer to me. <laughs> Did you see the Bruce Springsteen uh, play on Broadway by chance? You know, I was dying to see it on Broadway, but I had to settle for seeing it on the Netflix special. And it was so you saw it on Netflix. I mean, that whole beginning moving. It was yeah. Moving. I mean, for you, that must have been like very familiar. Like that whole kind of opening, se- you know, sequence about his life and his early days. Yeah, it was very bitter actually because both of my brothers went to see it on Broadway, and I didn't get to see it. <laughs> well, you did miss out. I'll tell <laughs> so you. That. I was kind of angry about that part of it, but it was great. <laughs> do you re- is there? Do you resonate with the with, with the? I mean, does that sort of speak to you in your time? Do you think, or was it a little bit? after you before you how how do you connect with his music well it was a little bit uh, just a little bit before me but you know a, a lot of what he talks about obviously resonates very closely all, all the, the places that are mentioned in the early songs are all places i know pretty well um and there are, are uh, similarities but some differences i would say between uh, his experience in my childhood so so coming to what i imagine much just might be one of the differences um you told me you were a nerd who uh didn't quote who didn't much like growing? Uh, you didn't like school growing up, but nevertheless were excellent at it, and were fascinated by topics from history to math to physics. And you actually, uh, as one does, right, Lisa, taught yourself algebra over one oh, sure. summer, yes, uh-huh. so that you could get into a particular class in high school. But even so, I, think I taught myself how to forget algebra over one summer. <laughs> <laughs> but even so, you just you you just didn't love the experience. So you quit in eleventh grade, applied to, and got accepted at MIT. And then started studying there when you were 16. Uh, is that's pretty precocious, isn't it? Yeah. Well, you know, it, <laughs> it was. Uh, it's probably more unusual. I'd say probably now, um, kids in schools that are kind of a year older, I think, typically now than they were when I was in school. So it was it was less uncommon probably then than it is now. <laughs> so, so let's just talk a bit about MIT because as I. Did I mention, Lisa, that I was there for my PhD? Anyway, as you know, um, yeah, yeah. when I was there, um, I did get a chance to know um, so the undergraduates a bit. And I always thought that the undergraduate experience seemed brutal and unforgiving. Just a really, you know, authentically like... party school. Well, actually, it kind of was. <laughs> the fraternities were. But just I thought it was psychologically, it always seemed to me just a really unforgiving and difficult place to be. Yet even though you were relatively young when you started, you really loved it intellectually and socially. Is that right? I did. I had a great time. Um, I remember uh, about November, just about this time of year, my freshman year, standing there in my room thinking, you know, quitting high school and coming here was the best decision I ever made in my life. Um Wow. Yeah, I know I liked, it. I liked it from beginning to end. Why was that? Was it because you found your people or what was it? Yeah, that was part of it for sure. Um, you know, it was um, long enough ago that I, I think it was just before it became a place where uh, people sometimes went because they were monetarily motivated. I mean, everybody knew you'd do fine to get a good job if you went there. But it was more of a collection of kind of people who were uh, interested in at the time, somewhat bizarre technical subjects and scientific subjects. Um, I love that. It had a very, um, early on, it was very focused on having undergraduates do research, which I really liked doing. Um, it had a very uh, rigorous on one hand in terms of content, but um, uh, flexible in, on the other hand in terms of method to acquire the content, which was pretty much the only school I'd gone to, which, uh, you know, kind of mapped to how I like to study and learn things. So I, I enjoyed it. I also had a great time socially. Believe it or not, it was a, it was a very fun school to go to socially. 
Well, no, people who were there who were in the, fr- I mean, actually, there's a, it's a really big, at least at the time, frat, and I, I imagine now frat and sorority, right, um, uh, uh, system um, where people really are connected, you know, with, with, with that aspect mm-hmm. of it. And um, the other thing that MIT grads, of course, are famous for are their intricate and generally really clever uh, pranks or hacks. We can include a link to what's called the Hack Gallery that profiles some of these. Do any of these really stand out from your time, or did you contribute to uh, any of this tomfoolery? Uh, not that I would admit. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly not on the record. Um, uh, by far, the I think the funniest when I was there was there's a kind of running series of hacks of putting things up on the Great Dome, which is the, the highest point on the major building on the campus. People got cows up there. One time they put a police car up there. Um, but uh, Jeez, guys, well, like, I guess you're engineers and stuff, so you can figure out how to do it. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and one time, uh, guys I know but will not name, uh, put a working old South phone booth up there. Wow. Um, and so there's a picture, this well-known picture of it, with the phone booth, the door cracked, so the light was on in the middle of the night with the phone. Uh, but the best part of the hack was they actually got it assigned a phone number. So, somehow, <laughs> and so you can actually call this phone booth. Yeah. Oh my God, that is awesome! Um, so it was, you know, <laughs> it's kind of what you did if you were very dirty for fun. So you graduated from MIT. You started a PhD program at Wharton in the context of an unusually prestigious dean's fellowship there that allowed you to essentially take classes and whatever you wanted, and you had lots of freedom. But even so, you sort of figured out at about this time that academics weren't for you, and you left. What was going through your head then? Well, I. Uh, <clears throat> I I looked around me and realized that I didn't want to make a career in academia. Um, I took a summer job at Bell Labs, which I liked quite a lot. And I'd never really thought about being in business um, at all before that um, and had a very probably blinkered and narrow-minded view about what it was really like um, to work in a business. I discovered that on one hand, I liked that. And on the other hand, I really didn't want to get on the long, grueling road to get a PhD to sort of work my way through the whole uh, tenure process. So, so you sort of, so I guess under what you saw, you know, it wasn't the highlight highlight you were telling me about Bell Labs, but it was still, it was still a really interesting time. So you sort of found your way out of academia and into business. And then it sounds like, just to jump forward a little bit, it sounds like you eventually found your way to strategy consulting, which you pursued at a firm that did this in an unusually quantitative way before that was super sexy. <laughs> and uh, what it kind of is now, and you said that you love trying to solve messy real world problems. What, tell us what you mean in the sort of stuff you were initially working on. Well, I went to work uh, at the time, very small group of guys who had spun out of the Boston Consulting Group uh, and created a, for the time, very quantitative, very data-driven uh, consulting firm that was still doing, you know, CEO strategy consulting. And what was so fascinating about it to me was being able to take a real-world challenge, um, try and translate it to a mathematical representation solve the problem, and then bring it back into a real-world solution, which requires making all kinds of approximations and trade-offs and convincing people to do it, et cetera, Uh, and being able to, you know, go into a large manufacturing company and several months later watch the production facility change the way it was operating and simply become more productive was, to me, incredibly exciting. So can every problem be reduced to a mathematical problem? No, not at all. Uh, and in fact, you know, <clears throat> there's a famous saying that gets pounded into your head on starting on day one in most technical programs, which is the model is not oh. the system. Oh, that's interesting. All right. So all, all models are at best approximations. 
which is another way of, of a polite way of saying they're all wrong. <laughs> um, but some are more usefully wrong than others. And so the question, I think, is always, does that method against a particular problem lead to a stream of decisions, which in aggregate are uh, create better outcomes when a business that normally needs profit or shareholder value? Uh, and I think that's stood me in good stead as uh, a metric for deciding is this modeling exercise worthwhile or not. I mean, that's what seems to be really distinct is, you know, of as we know, and we'll come to it about how everyone, you know, for analytics and now with AI is sort of descending on the space, generally sort of um, fetishizing the technology that they're using. But this seems like even from the earliest times, you really somehow figured out that the focus is on business problem to be solved. And you sort of have a, I guess, a tool, you know, in, in your, in your a, a collection of tools that, that, that you can apply to it. Now, you eventually took this thinking to start your own company called uh, Applied Predictive Technology. What was the idea here? Well, the idea was um, that often when you get into, in my experience at that time in my life, and I, it's been confirmed since then, when I sat in lots of, you know, very nice conference rooms and large companies and watched people discuss problems analytically um, using data, it seemed to me that very often that was analysis as rhetoric. That really the function of the analysis was to compel or intimidate agreements to a conclusion reached for other reasons. And that when you yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah, there's definitely, it's related. That seems like a variation almost of um, innovation and, theater you know, that people when describe. When you're actually where, the one uh, yeah. building at the time, back when I was a consultant before I started that company, um, when you're building these big involved at the time spreadsheets, what you'd end up with is very, comp often you'd end up with this very complicated set of calculations that you've done a lot of work on. But down in cell, you know, BR311, there's an assumption you had to put in, which was, going to be either 0.2 or 0.3. And if it was 0.2, you got to one conclusion about what the right business answer was. And at 0.3, it was another conclusion, right? <laughs> and so it became a very sophisticated and sometimes therefore useful way of restating assumptions and identifying what assumptions are critical. Um, but it was often <clears throat> um, fetishized and actually not um, helpful in answering that question. Well, I don't know, was it 0.2 or 0.3, right? And uh, I think that when forced to confront the practical implications and results of those kinds of modeling exercises, and when you're the one doing the modeling exercise, it does lead people, I think, often where it led me, which is, well, we have to run controlled experiments. Like, that's the way to really know. If this is a thing we can test, we run the test, and then we can know the answer. And actually, that little firm spun off a number of companies. Um, one of them was Capital One. Uh, which, you know, a couple of people at the firm left and created, which was really originally built as a platform for large-scale randomized experiments. And so this is like a lot related to the A-B testing, but before the, really there was a web, before there was this sort of now almost routine, you know, A-B, do you like this font or that font? Do you, will this draw in more viewers or will that? That's exactly so right. So what were some of... What were some of the uh, – the Capital One stuff is super fascinating, but on your own stuff, on APT, what were – because these were ultra-pragmatic questions, like how do you arrange things on – you know, in like a supermarket shelf, right? Could you just sort of make it really concrete for us? Sure. Um, and, and in fact, when I was launching the company, which is 1999, 
A-B testing and online testing was was becoming prominent. And a lot of the way we would describe it to people is this is A-B testing for the other 93% of your sales, right, which aren't happening online. <laughs> um, and so it would be, as you say, it's really anything I could do here and not there. And we ultimately penetrated a lot of consumer-facing industries that had pretty good share in them. So it would be questions like, I'm a grocer. Should I put the Snickers next to the Mars bars or put the Snickers next to the M&Ms? What really happens if we change price? Um, what if we train people uh, in our sales force differently? What if we pay for this uh, advertisement versus that advertisement, which is really going to drive more sales? Really, it's anything across the waterfront of things a large business uh, does where you have the opportunity to create a compare contrast. Do it here or not there. And how did that, so when you were doing this, how, you know, I would imagine, you know, I was just thinking about this the other day, is there any type of almost like principal agent challenge where for the business as a whole, like it's exciting to do this, but if you have like 37 11s that are doing it one way and 30 that are doing it another, you're relying on each of those individual stores just to do what you say and to do it one of the ways or the other, even if they don't personally think it's necessarily the best. But also you have the, the, the model is never the system problem, right? Because the model is reliant on all of those store proprietors being the same guy and they're different and they have different personalities when customers come in. Right. So there's, there's a two distinct and important questions. Um, on the first question, <clears throat> testing works better in the context of a command and control environment than anywhere else, which is kind of a very politically incorrect thing to say, but true. Um, it's actually why when you get into, I think, the introduction of the Beer, Fruit and Drug Act, and the FDA and randomized trials and so on and public health generally, there's a coercive aspect to it, right? Which is we know the answer. So we're not going to let you use this drug or that drug. We're going to force compliance with in the testing. You have to listen to describe here. We're going to force compliance with uh, the protocols of this randomized trial, et cetera. So it's definitely an issue and you, you need the ability to basically force compliance. Of course, in the real world, you know, unlike TV, people in business aren't usually pounding desks and yelling at each other. Um, and there's a lot of processes in place to make sure that those 30 people who have to do the test this time aren't always the ones asked to do the test and, you know, maintaining a, a, the appearance and reality of equity across, in your example, the different 7-11 store managers, et cetera. The second question, which is around, well, really, I have 30 people, let's say, who are in RMA of the experiment. And when I say, I want you to put the Snickers bars here and not there, you know, some people are more diligent than others. They're really going to do it. They're going to do it well. Some people will grumble and they won't get to it till the second day of the experiment, et cetera. Um, which gets to, which I think is your question, which gets to kind of an important point, which is, I think in a drug trial, there classically, there's a distinction between efficacy and effectiveness, right? So, Efficacy is, roughly speaking, performance of the intervention under ideal conditions and effectiveness is under real-world clinical conditions. And so I think when you move to experiments that are non-coercive, non-chemical interventions, that distinction becomes metaphysical. Like, there really is only effectiveness, right? And the way I'd say that practically responds to your question is, as the owner in this example of 7-Eleven you're giving, as the operator, shareholder, owner of 7-Eleven, I don't have a, dis a management program in front of me called get every one of my store managers to do X perfectly. The actual intervention available to me is send an email with these instructions, call the follow-up, et cetera. That's the pill I'm testing, right? So that 
messiness of <clears throat> intervention is actually part of what the program is. That's interesting. So the fact that it may be imperfectly followed, well, that's what's going to happen when you actually do it. So it's as, it's just as well to have that as part of the test. Effectively part of the protocol, yeah. So now, how did the work here lead to your book, uh, Uncontrolled? Tell us why you wrote it and, like, and, you know, a lot of this distinction between where you can and can't extrapolate some of the lessons from these RCTs seems to me really one of the key take-home points. Uh, I agree. Um, so the, my motivation for writing it was, um, as you guys know, I think, when you, when you do a startup, you go into a dark, deep hole where you really don't observe anything else. And, you know, or the best description I ever heard uh, of what it's like to be an entrepreneur is you just keep putting one dumb foot in front of the other while the whole world throws bricks at your head. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been deep into this for, you know, close to 10 years. Um, and there was this thing called the global financial crisis happening. And I was just kind of coming up for air enough that we'd done a secondary offering. And, you know, I was still running the company, but it was out of startup phase, was profitable and growing and stuff. And I was kind of vaguely aware of this on TV. And I remember walking in to my then apartment and my wife had this TV on. And there was some very famous economist on TV. And it was, the argument was uh, that was happening and was around the stimulus program, right? This is 08, 09. And he was very confidently asserting what would happen to the economy if we executed this stimulus program. And I just thought, I just spent 10 years figuring out where to put Snickers bars on a shelf. <laughs> and it's really hard to predict what people are going to do. Like, I don't believe you can do that, right? I mean, I'm not saying you're right or wrong. I just don't think you have a method that can be reliable to do that. I'm skeptical. So over the next several years, I started writing the book. Um, and it was really, it's really about, you know, the limits to our rational knowledge when it comes to understanding the effects of our interventions. So is it essential to do it this way, this, this fact-finding um, evidence-based way? Or is gut feel good enough if the outcomes turn out effectively the same or often the same? Well, let's see. I, I guess the way... I'd put that as this non-experimental social science. And I'm including in that what businesses do, you know, the attempt to understand how people interact in groups um, isn't really capable of making useful, reliable, and non-obvious predictions for the effect of most proposed interventions, whether that's changing stickers, bars, locations on a shelf, or changing a, you know, policy initiatives at the level of federal government. Um, and I think those methods can improve their practical utility by conducting lots more experiments, and they should be doing that. I think that even with those that improvements, it, it actually will not be able to adjudicate most important debates because lots of things you can't test. In other words, you should test if you can and if the purchase of the information is worth the cost of the test. And I spent a lot of time arguing why I'm pretty confident that's true. And I think in the context of our conversation, I have like the FDA on my side. <laughs> so like, you can have any theory you want until you've got a randomized experiment with good protocols, like it's a theory. Um, and I think that to go to the heart of your question, the ironic thing about it is, in my view, what it leads to is where I can't run the experiments and I'm trying to make a complicated decision about whether to intervene in some way in a system that train people differently, give them this pill or not, you know, change my prices, anything like that. Where I can't, if I run the experiment, I should do it. But where I can't run the experiment, and I often can't 
the argument that, well, this is the best analysis we have doesn't really hold water because you're not only competing with other analytical methods, you're competing with practical expertise. And then in general, we should defer to practical experts in the absence of extremely strong evidence, not defer to, well, whatever the best analysts tell us, because mostly the analysts don't know if they don't have experiments. They don't have a reliable method for knowing interventions. So that's so interesting. So that's like it's you're talking about really like false precision. Yeah. And this is actually, I think, what Taleb described actually before Congress yeah. as sort of actually the, the, the detrimental power of of these so-called experts, because it says like they're seeming to invoke knowledge and expertise and then getting people to listen, even though the predictive ability, they, they really can't make it in many of these cases, but they, they don't have the humility to say it. So it's actually what consultants often like to say, well, it's directionally correct. But your point is that actually it really may not be, and that rather than sort of opining on it, it it's just such an uncomfortable position to be in because you'd like how do you decide, you know, how so many, and I think you've discussed this, like on the policy front, and education policy is an example you've talked about, uh, uh, just as an example, you know, where you can't have good, you can't, it, in certain cases where you can't generalize, you know, what, how do you just, you'd like for there to be some sort of objective, evidence-based way to decide what to do. And I guess your approach is to be really cautious about these broad generalities that say, we know this is the better way. Yeah, and I think that embedded in your comment as you're touching on something, which is, even if I have run a well-structured experiment, it's very difficult to generalize it, right? Um, and you're, that's embedded in your broader point that we have to accept, in my view, if we're rational, the limits to our knowledge and have a, a deep kind of humility about our ability to really know in some non-obvious way the effects of our interventions on their social interventions as opposed to physical interventions. Um, and that does lead to a heavy emphasis on hedging your bets and trial <laughs> and error learning. Well, I also think, you know, sort of like the whole dichotomy between causation and correlation, you know, which are we actually talking about here? You only know in retrospect half the time, I think. And I think a lot of times you don't know ever. Like even in retrospect, you don't know. And one of the things I get into in the book is, you know, I, you know, co correlations on causation is could be sort of the banner for the book. In a weird way, when you really, really, really push all the way down to the philosophical foundations, in my view, actually, correlation causation is reliable correlation. That's all it is. If you have reliable correlation, it allows you to say if X happens, then Y will follow. That is what, in engineering terms, that is what causation is. But what I'm really arguing is that reliability and correlation is extremely deceptive. That it's very easy to talk ourselves into we've seen a pattern that actually is invalid. Have you seen that uh, website, Spurious Correlations by Tyler Vegan? Yeah, it's great. It's fantastic. Oh, it's, I love that because I think it so aptly makes your point, you know, sort of like the correlation between like, you know, Medicare pricing and banana, you know, imports or whatever. It's just so funny right. and also so pointed. But I think I mean, one of your main points is to essentially not do anything too big and bold based on one supposed experiment say now we need to do this for everybody. And it seems like your point, again, it's a little bit of local government versus here, this has to be the government policy for all. If, yeah, I mean, if, I, went through if, a, I went through a bunch of examples of that. Yeah. Um, may, maybe the best one in, in the book, maybe the, I thought the clearest example is there's this very famous in social policy terms experiment um, done in the early 80s 
by a very good criminologist, and it was really well structured. The protocol was excellent. It was randomized, and they were testing: should you do what's called immediate arrest for a domestic uh, uh, violence offender, versus the traditional remedy, which is a cooling off period, and they tried a third arm too. Ran this experiment and showed, you know, it's definitely the case that you have a material reduction in probability of reoffense in the prediction window. I think it was six months or a year. Uh, if you do immediate arrest. And so it started getting rolled out all across the United States. <laughs> Within 10 years, it's like 70 or 80% of the U.S. population was in areas that had executed this policy. The researcher said, you need to replicate this before you roll it out. And so while that rollout was happening, the United States, they ran six replications in six different cities. In three of them, they, they, drove, up, they drove down recidivism. In three of them, it got worse. And so looking back on it, you then can have these causal theories that say, oh, well, here are the conditions under which it works better versus worse. Um, but exactly this problem you described is very, very practical. And I think my, as you guys are more expert on the following subject, but as I look in from the outside at the way trials are done and interpreted, et cetera, in medicine, in the world of policy interventions, the assumption of uniform biological response is obviously totally invalid, right? I mean, <laughs> if I have a literacy program that works in rural Saskatchewan in 1938, it's not very good odds that it's going to work in New York in 2019. Whereas, you know, in the classical heroic era of the RCT, if I discover polio vaccine, it basically works more or less as an engineering approximation everywhere for everybody. Mm -hmm. But it does seem to me that we're now in a phase of many discover many of the therapies that are being tested look more like those context-dependent interventions. It's a little more conditional, and people are really trying to exactly. define. So I want to make sure we get to this. So, so you eventually sold APT and have recently started a new company called Foundry AI, which seeks to apply AI as an analytical tool to real-world business problems. Um, and um, I know we don't have super much time left, but I really want to sort of get an understanding of, like, how did you get interested in AI? And specifically, to make sure we have a little bit of time to talk about AI applied to healthcare and how you're approaching problems in a way that's different from others, perhaps. Well, I think, first of all, AI is a new name for an old thing. It is, well, it is, of course, the most overhyped term in the history of the world, as far as I can tell right now. <laughs> uh, I, I like that statement, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But in, the most overhyped term in the history of the world. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I know, I, do I, know. Get the, I do get the irony of the reference. Hashtag irony. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I, uh, um, I, I think that, you know, my observation is that AI on television is like robots playing Jeopardy. But AI, as I've seen it applied in large businesses to improve performance, almost always follows the same pattern. And certainly it's a thing we focus on which is it is data plus math and sometimes new kinds of data and sometimes new kinds of math, but data plus math used to create statistical improvement in some repeated business decision process. Um, and so that's always the frame I take to, is there a real opportunity, you know, to drive performance improvements? And so where have you been able to, um, uh, apply it in healthcare, or where are you sort of working on it? Because this seems to me, you know, what we're hearing about is, oh my gosh, we're going to discover grand new science, we're going to figure out about all of these different things, we're going to fix, um, you know, chemistry of drug discovery, we're going to discover, you know, figure out how to do toxicity better, we're going to figure out all of this stuff, we're going to figure out how to run, just, as you know, an infinite number of promises. So I'm wondering sort of where... How do you figure out where to focus and where have you seen some early indications that you're going to be successful? 
Well, um, I think that my as general observation is if I take the frame that I gave you, I would, I always look for repeated processes. Um, and so I think these uh, almost miraculous invention of a completely new drug is something that I'm very skeptical about that in the, the near future, we're going to invent some AI technology is going to do that. I think that if you look for, business processes that happen repeatedly within drug discovery, within financial operations of a company, within the execution of randomized trials, et cetera. I think solving those sub-problems is actually much more appropriate use of AI. And as again, as I look at it, it does seem to me that that's where when people go from the press releases saying we expect to do blank to we have done blank, um, that seems to me to be a much richer target environment for where you see successes. That's an abstract answer to your question. Does it, I think that, you know, kind of go ahead. Well, no, it's just it's funny because it's like less sexy, but more prob probably useful, the operational uh, aspects that you're describing, right? Yeah, that's what I, that's very much what I think. You know, the idea that AI is going to solve a problem that a group of extremely smart expert people cannot solve is generally a mirage. Where that's happened is in very define problem spaces like chess or go. But when you get into an extremely unstructured problem space, doing something that no human can do to me is a really heavy lift for an AI system. What it more is, is allows you to do something that an expert human can do with reasonably good reliability, but A, you can do it at way lower cost. B, you can do it way faster and C, you can do it with greater reliability and less error. And is that because the AI itself is, you know, the, the, the parameters are defined by people to begin with? Yes. Or is it? Yeah, it's because okay. you have a more narrowly defined problem space. You know, people are making, in my estimation, and, you know, famously there are people who are pounding the table who are my age saying no one's ever going to fly like a week before the Wright brothers you know, launched the plane, right? So uh, there can always be breakthroughs that are anticipated. <laughs> right, but right, when I look right. at current AI technologies that I've seen up close and write, writing code around, I, I think that there are extravagant promises being made and assertions being made about what it can do. Um, it can do really valuable things. I build companies around it that are enormously economically important and actually can improve clinical health outcomes. But generally not involving wicked problems, right? Like in, no, in, in, in the Hogarth exactly. sense, yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, you're basically saying what AI is is another in a long line of productivity tools, not the answer to our prayers, right? It's not going to find the undiscovered drug, uh, because that were might, but it would have been found anyway by smart people paying attention. I think it can help people do that. Yeah, it's it, you're not going to build a device which is going to do that. You can build a device which will solve sub-problems that may make it feasible to get to a drug you wouldn't have gotten to otherwise and a lot faster and a lot cheaper. Um, but it's going to be you know, tiles in a mosaic of the solution to get to that problem, to get to a solution. To so um, a final question for you, um, and this is in a category, as they say on social media, of asking for a friend. <laughs> um, <laughs> so <laughs> asking for a friend. <laughs> um, so you managed to live a very intellectually active life. I mentioned your book before, but you're um, also, I think, still, right, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute Think Tank, and you're a frequent commentator. Do you view your writing life as independent from your entrepreneurial life, or do you see them as mutually reinforcing in some way? Well, uh, I actually don't really do any writing and have it for a number of several years. Um, I, I may or may not come back to it. Um, 
but it definitely grew out of the things I learned as an entrepreneur. Um, absolutely. It's why I thought I had something to say um, because of those lessons of experience. Uh, so I saw that I saw one is growing out of the other and I may come back to it, you know, later when I'm, I'm no longer so focused on company building. So you prefer to do them serially. So to sort of to yeah. have your entrepreneurial experiences and then sort of reflect on them um, for a bit and then go and have more entrepreneurial Although experiences. You could use AI to write a book because it would make it happen faster. <laughs> you know, there's, there's <laughs> open AI Institute is this organization that it was the greatest PR coups ever announced. They, they built an algorithm they couldn't release because it's too dangerous to release it on the world. <laughs> and then they had it they had it write fiction, like paragraphs of fiction, and you sort of then understood why they didn't want to release it on the world. So I think we're pretty far from <laughs> pretty far from you know, uh, Shakespeare being challenged by AI. Yeah. Well, I, I do hope you write more because um, uh, I always find your writing, your thinking, your discussions in, in just in, um, uh, just uh, so thoughtful and, and such a breath of fresh air um, and, and very and original and independent. Um, and, and just terrific. I'm, I'm, I'm just so appreciative of you being here. And thanks for joining us on the show today. Thank you. It's been great talking to you. That's very flattering. Thank you very much. Wow, well, that was that was awesome. Isn't he such an interesting, thoughtful guy? Uh, yeah, for you know somebody who's so steeped in statistics and, and math and science, he's got a great sense of humor about it. I love that about him too. You know, just uh, really appreciates. Well, the, I really uh, like, and we didn't really have a chance to get tease. into it, but even his approach is is sort of um, is a business problem first approach. You know, really bringing this. I think that you know, in a sense, the consulting and the, you know, what is the core business problem mindset, um, which I think is sort of a little bit of a, of a, a welcome antidote to the. Um, solutionism that sometimes we hear about and uh, you know if you had to pick someone to be you know sort of successful by working you know really you know within the system and focusing on the problems but bringing sharp analytical tools uh, you know I I definitely think it would be something I do I do though think there is some irony to the fact that he's selling an AI solution effectively to solve problems when he clearly has mixed feelings about AI as a solution finding tool right I mean I don't mean it I don't mean to say that the business isn't Phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, to say like, you know, it's so interesting to find somebody who's selling you something while also helping you understand the limits of what you're buying. Yeah, yeah. I would say that sort of. Well, I think what I'm what I imagine is that for some people, they're you know they're going to be like, no, no, we want the magic and the innovation center. But for the people who are like, okay, well, I, there's something exciting here. How can we gainfully apply mm-hmm. it to our business? I think that's where he's going to and it has been finding his sweet spot. Um, and you know, just very pragmatically leveraging a, a complete tool set that includes AI. And as you point out, you know, it's a little bit of the advertising. It is you know promoting that, um, but trying to uh, use it. So uh, that should be that should, it'll be uh, interesting to see what happens. So um, please remember to rate us on iTunes, leave a comment, help others discover the show. You can follow David's column, Astounding Health Tech, at the Timmerman Report. And you can follow the wonderful Lisa Soonin at VentureValkyrie.com. We're grateful to our sponsor, Manat Health, a multidisciplinary professional services firm that includes a full-service law firm and a broad-based strategic policy and consulting practice to help our clients grow and prosper. Manat Health supports the full range of stakeholders in transforming America's healthcare system. Tectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and recorded in Tectonic Studio B in always scenic Mill Valley, California. Be well. Go out and hug a tree.